It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 84, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Lydia Ryle raises 15 acres of vegetables at Cropthorn Farm, located on a small farming island where the Fraser River meets the Pacific Ocean, just 12 miles outside of Vancouver, British Columbia. $600,000 worth of produce is marketed through three farmers markets and a CSA, as well as through wholesale accounts and a farm stand on the property. A third-generation farmer, and maybe more, Lydia farms on a 50-acre property owned by her family. In addition to her operation, family members also raise flowers, grains, and eggs in two additional businesses operating on the same piece of land. Lydia hires family members as part of her operation. We discuss the nitty-gritty of how they've made this work, including their experience bringing in outside help to work on the details of their business agreements and how they can better work together. Named the British Columbia and Yukon Outstanding Young Farmer for 2014, Lydia has operated her farm since 2009. Her depth of experience in business and horticultural acumen are apparent as we discuss the ways she has mitigated the heavy clay soils in her wet climate, the challenges and the opportunities of the recent addition of migrant workers to her farm crew, the changes a new baby has brought to the farm and how she is prepared to accommodate those changes, winter root storage and ongoing harvest, the tools she uses to track harvest packing and sales, and more. This is a value-packed episode. I think you're going to enjoy it a lot. Thank you for joining us for the Farmer to Farmer podcast. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com. Lydia Ryle, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you. I'd like to start today by having you tell us a little bit about Cropthorn Farm. Just kind of give us the context of what you've got going on there in British Columbia. Yeah, so um, we are a certified organic farm. We grow vegetables. Um, we have 17 acres of, of veggies and quite a diversity of it. Um, we do farmer's markets. We do three a week. We also do a summer CSA program as well as two winter CSA programs. Uh, do a little bit of wholesale, restaurant sales, and have a farm stand here on the island as well. You mentioned that you're on an island. I think your geographic location is really fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit more about exactly where you're located and kind of give us a, a little bit of a, of a picture of how that works for those of us that aren't familiar with the area around Vancouver, British Columbia? Sure. So we are a small farming island um, in the mouth of the Fraser River. Uh, so right where the sea meets, or where the river meets the sea. And all there is on our island is farms. And there's a 104-year-old one-way bridge um, getting onto the island. But what makes our area really unique is the closeness to Vancouver. We're only about 20 kilometers to Vancouver. And for your American listeners, we are really close to the border as well. We're only 18 kilometers. And I wish I knew what miles were, but we're 18 kilometers to uh, the U.S. border. We'll call it 12 miles. Sounds good. And it's also a really lush valley. So it's the Fraser River Valley. Um, and throughout the Fraser River Valley, there's a lot of farming going on and, and we're, we're right in it. I grew up in Seattle. And so I've spent some time in Vancouver and I was actually out there working just a couple years ago. And it's a, 
it's a very highly developed place and and very limited in terms of its geography. There's really nowhere for that city to grow. How is their farmland that close into Vancouver? Yeah. So back in the 70s, the government of the day um, put in an agricultural land reserve um, because they could tell that there was a lot of pressure on farmland. So right now, anything that is zoned farmland, um, it does come out, but it's a lot more difficult for that land to come out um, for residential. Um, the biggest pressure we see for farmland now is putting highways and roads through. Um, we're close to one of the biggest ports in Canada. Um, we're only about 10 minutes away. So there's a lot of pressure for that uh, in terms of um, senior governments wanting to take land out. There's not a ton of land coming out in our area anymore because of housing. Um, it's mostly uh, just large-scale development. So it's it's a good concept, our land reserve, but it's not perfect. But I think as farmers, we're grateful that it's that it's there and, and, and doing a decent job. And it's my understanding that you're a third generation farmer. Yeah, probably further than that. But yeah, my, on both sides, both my grandparents um, farmed at times and my parents farmed and yeah, I'm, I'm going and, and so is my sister. Now, are you farming where you grew up? No. So Interestingly enough, my parents, or I grew up, my parents had an 18-acre hydroponic greenhouse operation. So it is extremely different from what uh, CropThorn is today. Um, they had, you know, over 100 employees, very intensive. And so they realized that none of us kids were interested in taking over their farm. Um so they bought um, another piece of property here on Westham Island, and uh, now they've sold and sold their greenhouse operation and now have moved to, uh, they have 200 layer chickens out on pasture, and they do grain as well. And my sister, she has been working with me the last seven years, and this year she has just started her own uh cut flower business. So um, we have three operations going uh, on this land. And that and that land's larger than the 17 acres that Cropthorn Farm is on. Yeah. So the property in its entirety is 50 acres. Um, so my parents do about 20, 25 acres of grain. Um, and then there's a bit of pasture. And my sister at this point has just under an acre of cut flowers. So what year did you start farming on your own? It was 2009. And what did you do before that? I went to school for agriculture, so I do have a degree in it. Um, it was out on the prairies, though, so it was much larger scale, uh, mostly grain and cattle based. But um, I did my university, and I worked on a few farms uh, before I came home. And the reason I came back to the lower mainland, so the Vancouver area was access to land it's you know expensive so it was it was going to be hard to start so um i started by leasing three quarters of an acre from my parents yeah 2009 and really just worked your way out from there 
Yeah. So my sister came on our second year and got our first apprentice year three. And yes, our eighth season. Yeah, things are a lot different than the in the early days. When you started, did you imagine that you were going to end up with 15 acres of vegetables? And well, and I shouldn't even say maybe that you're going to end up with 15 acres of vegetables. Maybe you're you're going to have more as as time goes on. But did you did you imagine having what's really a relatively large operation? I didn't. Um, I don't know if I knew where I was going. I was 23 or 24 at the time. Um, the first year or two, I think there was lots of ignorant bliss going on. Um, didn't necessarily have, you know, a solid business plan when I first went in. I was just I won't call it playing around because I took it seriously, but, um, yeah, it was very different. I think once I moved to three acres and I had an employee and things like that, I quickly realized I needed to get some sort of efficiency gains, um, needed to mechanize the operation, even though I was young, you know, if this is what I was going to be doing a long time, there was the need to mechanize and just make it easier on our bodies. So it probably took a couple of years before I realized that there was a certain level um, that the farm needed to be. And once I moved to our new farm, um, because I farmed at my parents' old property for about three years before um, they bought this property that we're on now. And once we moved here, I had to put up a whole bunch of infrastructure we put up four poly houses, um, built uh, a barn, which, which stores our coolers and our post-harvest area and our maintenance facilities. So once we had to, once I had to put that much, you know, infrastructure in, things got serious, and I realized we had to be a certain scale to be to be profitable. Now, with with 15 acres of vegetables and and four poly houses, about how much are you running in gross sales now? Um, about 600,000, I'd say. Depends on the year, but uh, yeah, it's it's over half million now. And is all of that done as as retail marketing through the farmer's markets and through the CSA? About 5% is wholesaled, so a really small amount. Uh, the rest of it, yeah, it's going to to what you said, and then the restaurants and, and our farm stand here. So you guys run a farm stand on the property, but you mentioned that the um, you mentioned that Westham Island is all agricultural. That farm stand is, I guess, then primarily driven by tourist traffic. Yeah. So what's great about our island? There is a really well known bird sanctuary at the end of it. So a lot of families go out to bird watch. There's also a few farms on the island here that do you pick berries that have been doing it for a very long time that are quite popular. So on the weekends, especially, there's a lot of traffic here. People like to go bike riding. Um, so it is quite uh, a popular destination for people from Vancouver. And so it's a mixed blessing being so close to the city and the pressure is that there's a huge population close that want to come out to your farm too. Can you tell us about how your business divides up then between the farm stand, the CSA and the farmer's market in terms of sales in each of those different categories? So about 70% of our 
sales come from farmers markets. Um, another twenty percent are probably is our CSA, and then the last ten percent would be a mix of farm stand and um, our restaurant sales and and wholesale. Interesting. So those those farmers markets are obviously a hugely important part of your business. You're doing those primarily in Vancouver, or do you have something that you're doing more locally than that? We do three weekly markets in the summer months in Vancouver. We also have one in our hometown of Ladner that's bi-weekly. Uh, so there's only six or seven dates in the entire year. We make sure we do that one. It's important for our local community and, and to get more customers out to our farm stand. The farm stand is a relatively new thing for us. So we really want to let our local community know about that and bring and have them come out and let them know. I mentioned before, for people that don't know, Vancouver is a, I mean, it's a very metropolitan city. I mean, there's a, I mean, it's, it's dense, but it's also a very thriving food scene there. Um, can you tell us about the farmer's markets that you're doing? Yeah, so we do three, and there's a really well-run organization um, that manages them. And there's one that we do on Wednesdays, and the setting is beautiful. It's the old train station in a park. Um, it's right in the center of the city, and we get a lot of people commuting um, at the end of the day. And then our weekend markets, one is right downtown in the West End, and then we do one. Um, our Sunday market is in a more of a family university oriented area, um, but they're they're great. There's a ton of different vendors there, um, so it's a really nice mix for customers. And they these markets have, are really well established, so um, they're quite busy even on the Vancouver West Coast rainy days. If you weren't busy on the rainy days in the Pacific Northwest, you wouldn't be busy ever, right? I think so. Yeah. Especially because we do two winter markets, um, November to April. And it's, it's a rainy winter out here and it's just amazing to see the crowds and the lineups when it's just pouring because, you know, we have to go and set up and we don't want to come back with a half full truck back to the farm. So it's, we're just, so grateful for our customers throughout the year that come out and it's such a great relationship we have with them. So just to be clear, your winter farmers markets are actually happening out of doors. Yes. Yep. So we send up, set up our tents and uh, yeah, make sure we have good rain gutters and uh, hope for the best. So it can, it, there's some tough days. There's some days where, Again, it's in Celsius, but it's about two degrees, three degrees, and the wind's blowing and it's raining, and it's not the most enjoyable place to be, but um, we usually only have about two miserable winter market days a year, and we get some really sunny ones as the new year comes. I've always said that being at 32 degrees or you know Fahrenheit or zero degrees in Celsius in Seattle is much more miserable than being at like minus 10 or minus 20 here in the Midwest, just because of the, the wet just goes right through you. 
I completely agree. You know, after spending the time on the prairies, I'd come home for break in university and I find it colder here and it would be at least, you know, five, 10 degrees warmer here. You're doing some winter farmers markets. Are those crops all coming out of your high tunnels or with that, the relatively mild winters that you have, are you guys able to harvest outdoors? We have a really busy fall here. Uh, We grow a lot of root crops. And so a good portion of our winter sales is from things that we've harvested in September, October, and November um, and store in our coolers. We do grow in our greenhouses. They are unheated. Um, We don't get a lot of light in November and December. In January, we, we do get a bit back. So things don't do great at growing. Um, they hold. And we're still harvesting quite a bit from the the greenhouses. Um, and outside, it depends on the year. Uh, we do kales and chard, um, sprouting broccolis. Um, it just depends when a really cold weather snaps. Last year, we didn't have it at all. Um, so we try to get as much outside as we can. But we also know that in a cold year, we might only get a November harvest and then we're done. So um, we also have really heavy clay soil here. And, it, you know, as we talked about earlier, it rains a lot. So the plants aren't super happy being that saturated. Um, and the water doesn't drain really well. So um, we don't try to rely on a ton of stuff to overwinter us outside. So tell me a little bit about how you're dealing with those heavy clay soils. I mean, obviously you have to deal with those year round in what's oftentimes a wet environment all year round. So on your 15 acres of production, how are you making that work? I think at some point you just know your soil type and you can start to relax a bit. You know, at the beginning, I'd I'd get frustrated that we weren't working our land in March um, some farmers further up the valley have sandier soil and are plowing in February and, you know, I'd get really itchy feet, but we're not on sometimes till the last week of April and May is our quietest month in terms of sales. And I've gotten to the point that I'm okay with that. We don't need to push to get onto the land early. Um, I want to get on when our equipment can get on. I don't want to have compaction issues. Um, and so I've relaxed a bit in terms of the rush of getting on in the spring. It's going to happen. It might be a week late, but it's, it's, we're still going to be okay. In the summer months, it's a blessing because we've actually had two summers of drought out here. And every time that you can irrigate that clay really holds that moisture. Um, we always say that, you know, more clay soils have tastier vegetables, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it makes us with heavy clay feel better. I think. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So in the winter as well, we pump our ditches. We have ditches that surround the field. And so we can pump the ditches um, out so that the ditches aren't full with water. Um, We do a little bit of raised beds for crops like parsnips that we're going to leave in the ground. So they're not, um, completely saturated. Uh, same with the garlic over the winter, but 
Yeah, it's heavy soil and it's pretty slick in the winter months. So what kind of equipment are you using on your 15 acres of vegetables? So we have three tractors. Um, we have about a 120 horsepower tractor. Um, it does a lot of our tilling and plowing at the beginning of the season. Um, also, with we use it for our transplanter. We have a John Deere 5085, and it's a really nice, it's a row crop tractor. Um, so we're doing our direct seeding with that one, um, cultivating with that one. It's got forks on it, so anything material handling we need to move around the farm, we have that. And then we have a really small 30-horsepower tractor, and it's we use it in our high tunnels. Um, we throw the potato digger on it, but it's not... Uh, it's not as as valuable as the early years where that was our sole tractor. So you use that in your high tunnels, I, and I maybe I should have asked earlier. How big are your high tunnels? We've got two of our high tunnels are a hundred feet by thirty five feet. Uh, another one is eighty by thirty five, and then we have quite a small one, which was our first one, um, twenty by sixty. And three of our high tunnels are movable, so we've used that rail system. Um, and so three of them, every year that we, we can move and rotate the soil and, yeah. So are you actually using the tractor inside of those high tunnels as well as outside when you're preparing the ground for the for the high tunnel to move over it? Yeah, so we just put the roll bar down and we can get in and and till up the beds. We used to have a walk, well, we still do a walk behind tractor, but I just find it's a lot faster. It's a lot easier on my body to, to go in with the tractor and to rototill than, than the walk behind. So only the little greenhouse, we have to use a walk behind. So you mentioned that outdoors, you use raised beds for some crops. It doesn't sound like you're using that for all of it doesn't sound like you're using that as your as your sole system on the farm. No, and I think during the summer months, we, there's not a huge advantage for us to be using raised beds, or I haven't found one yet. So it's mostly the winter crops that we want to overwinter um, that we're using the raised beds for. And then are you doing anything special with your tillage then in those heavy clay soils to encourage or to improve the drain the drainage? So we have tile drainage put in. Um, so that is about, again, meters. I'm sorry, Chris, you're going to have to translate, but it's three meters under underground. We have um, drain tiles going through to the ditches. So that is picking up any additional moisture um, and sending it to the ditches. Um, and the land's laser leveled, so there's a really gentle slope towards the ditch. Um, so we try to manage the water that way. Um, hey, you said the land's laser leveled. Is it, did you guys buy land that was laser leveled, or is that something that came later? The land was already laser leveled, and so when we bought the property, we went in tile drained shortly after that. I always think of laser leveling and I think of I think of the Central Valley in California. I don't think of a, a 15 acre vegetable farms, you know, that it, it seems like something that belongs with a much larger uh 
a much larger scale. And so it's interesting to me that you guys have that. Is that something that you have to work to maintain or is once it's done once it's, it's done? You're going to have to do it. I think again, every time that you move your soil thing, you're going to have a few imperfections here and there. Um, we are surrounded by a lot of potato farms. We're in potato country here. So for them, they they laser level and a lot of farms now tile drain as well. And I think a lot of that has to do with the pressure with farmland. Everyone here needs to get the most out of the land. And so if they can you know, add value by or get more profit by putting in those um, those improvements than they will. Right, because it's not like you can just go pick up another 10 acres of potato ground. You really need to make that work on the land that you've got because it is so constrained there in the valley. Absolutely. Um, and then have you done other things to mechanize your, your field operations? I mean, you mentioned that you're growing a lot of root crops. Are those coming out by hand or are you guys using a digger with those? They are coming out by hand. <laughs> I, yeah, each year I, I really look to think, can we mechanize? For our potatoes, we, we have mechanized. We have a, a digger that pulls the potatoes out. But for carrots and beets, um, our winter radish crop, rutabaga, they're all out by hand right now. Um, yep. Yeah. Every every November, I have at this point we can't make it pay um, for us to mechanize that yet, but I'm just waiting for the day um, to be able to do that because to bring in those crops in two days or three days compared to the two weeks that it takes us is is going to be a big improvement. I think when you harvest those crops, can you tell us about how you're doing the storage on those so that you can meter those out over the course of the winter? So. We bring everything in in macro bins. Right, would your um, would, do you guys know what those are down in the states, Chris? Yeah, so okay. so those big the the big pallet sized bins. Yeah, so we have we bring everything in in macro bins, and we have two walk in coolers um, that we can regulate the temperature in, and yeah, they're in there all winter. We haven't had problems with. Um, too much shrinkage or anything like that. Um, we don't really manage the humidity per se, um, but we're still from a October harvest of carrots. We will still have them um, in April for for being in cold storage. Same with rutabaga and beets; they seem to to store pretty well. And you're storing those crops dirty. Yes, everything we store dirty and then clean um, as orders come in. And you said that you're not doing any humidity control. Are you putting bags over those macro bins or anything, or are you just putting those roots straight in the cooler? We're putting the roots straight in the cooler. Uh, we are looking at putting some bags over top. Um, we were just talking about that yesterday. I think something that... I don't know if it helps or, but we also are putting our weekly leafy green harvests in there that are going in and out to markets throughout the winter. So there is moisture going in there 
and then coming back out because our leafy greens are dripping wet from from getting washed up. I don't know I I don't know if that helps or hinders, but the the humidity and moisture definitely changes in our coolers because some things um, are going in there quite wet on a weekly basis. Do you monitor the humidity at all? No. Nope. <laughs> Fair enough. And so I'm, I'm you know, and I'm trying to dig into this because this episode is scheduled to go live in mid-September. I know people are thinking about doing that fall roots harvest. And I know that one of the questions that always comes up is, you know, storing dirty versus storing clean. And one of the one of the questions we always get is about dirt staining then on the on the roots. And and you're saying that that's just not been an issue, even in your clay soils. So that's what's interesting is that I was surprised, too, that with our clay soils and, and the concerns only with carrots, the beets are no problem. Um, our parsnips were harvesting on a weekly basis, so they're not in storage. It's really carrots. And we grow the multicolored ones, so especially the lighter um, yellows. I won't say that there's no staining by March or April, but there's still very little. The reason that we don't wash prior is we don't have the labor for it. November and December are really busy. We're still pulling stuff out of the fields, and we can't. We have a root washer, but we can't spend so much time washing roots for the new year. So it's it's a weekly thing on our farm and. Um, so far, it's it's worked okay. The root washer that you have, it's a barrel washer. Yeah. So with the with the winter work that you have, are are you guys keeping employees on through the winter? Yeah. So two employees. Well, maybe I'll I'll talk a bit about who we have here and how many. Um, for our field crew for the summer, uh, we have, including myself, which this year is a little different for me, but including myself. We have uh, five people out in the field. Um, three of those people are from Mexico. We have, over the years, have had a really hard time finding labor. And um, there's a program that we can bring um, people up from Mexico, and they're here for eight months, and then they go home. And so part of that program, they have to leave December 15th. Um, and so... Last year was the first year we did that program, and it's been so important for our farm. The guys are amazing. Um, they're great to work with, and you know now they're coming back year after year, so we're really grateful for that. The only problem is they go home December 15th, which in a way is absolutely great because they go home to their families, which they need to see, and it's obviously really important for them to to go home. But in January, we do have a little bit of a labor crunch, but we have two full-time employees that carry us through throughout the year. So it's the three of us um, from January to March, um, washing veg, doing maintenance, and then we bring on more people um, later in the year. I'm a little surprised to hear that you had trouble finding good help. Being right outside of a city full of hipsters, I would think that it would be relatively easy to find people that were interested in working on an organic vegetable farm? I think people are interested uh, at the beginning. I think for them to sustain, you know, coming out here is, is the challenge. Um, I don't know, you know, we're a generation that we haven't worked with our hands. You know, we've been in front of computers most of our life. And so 
I think it's a huge change to come out to a farm and to be physically moving all the time. Um, and we just, we couldn't, we couldn't, yeah, our farm, we couldn't keep going. I would get a lot of sleepless nights in January thinking about what was our labor going to look like that year and what would happen in August? Would somebody, you know, drop out and would we have a major labor crunch? And, and it was just becoming unproductive. Um, and so, and so we've looked at alternatives and, you know, I was really hesitant about bringing people in from another country. I mean, for us, we're very much about the local economy and local food and things like that. But if we, you know, we put job out ads out, but nobody would apply for them and they weren't minimum wage jobs either. So it was really surprising. Um, but I have to say the guys are great. And for me, it's a total pleasure to work with people who know the plants that know agriculture, like they've been doing it their entire lives and like how, how they read plants and how they can see what the next harvest is. They, they can be so proactive. And so for me, they're such an important part of our operation. And for me, I, I can't speak enough about having these guys um, on our farm. Whether this will be the case in 15 years, um, I doubt it. But for now, until people around Vancouver um, are wanting to work on farms like us, it's it's kind of what we have to do to keep going. I think it's really interesting the point that you make about having people on the farm who who get agriculture. You know, they they actually they they get it in their bones, and it's not so much that they necessarily have to know about how it works to grow rutabagas in coastal British Columbia. It's that they can look out and and see and understand what's going on because they have that lifelong experience with it. Yeah, and for me. The farm, you know, it started out as as my baby, and it's important to me that the people that work here, um, and they and it is, they do get it, and even our our, our local staff. I'm I'm, I'm, you know, picky in a sense about who we hire. It's important that they that they care and that they're interested, um, and so we have a really good team. Like we have an amazing group of people that 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 farm here. And yeah, it's, it's really lovely. So when you started working with the Mexican crew, what kind of changes did that entail for you as a, as a farm manager? I think language barrier was one. I don't speak any Spanish and, um, their English, um, it varies. Uh, nobody is completely fluent in English. So, um, at the beginning, it was a little bit tough. We'd have our cell phones out using Google Translator, um, <laughs> and and a lot of um, explaining tasks by doing and showing. The amazing thing is they're so quick. They they understand how to wind tomatoes, or that leaves need taking off and and things like that. So they they were really quick to pick things up. Um, before we used to share a bit of who was going to the markets and our guys from Mexico, they, they don't go to the markets. They don't drive to town and, um, and do that. So it puts a bit more pressure on myself and our, our two other year round employees to be doing the markets. Um, 
there's a bit more, you know, management of just little things like, you know, the grocery shopping, going to the dentist and things like that, that I don't do with our, with our other staff, but it's, it's fine to do, of course, but, um, there wasn't, I was definitely concerned that there was going to be a huge change and I wouldn't, um, it'd be really hard to manage or I wouldn't, or wouldn't necessarily be a good fit for our farm, but they've, it's been absolutely no problem. Um, and it's, yeah, worked really well. Do you have to provide housing? Yes. So, uh, last year we put on, um, yeah, a house for them. It's a mobile home. So they have three bedrooms, kitchen, bathroom. So they're fully contained in there. What's interesting, though, is, is that with our agriculture land reserve, we can't put on housing for farm employees. We can put it on for migrant. We can put on housing for people coming from Mexico or Guatemala. But if we wanted to farm or if we wanted to house one of our employees, from Vancouver or anyone from Canada, we wouldn't be able to put on a house for them. So that's part of the issue. In Vancouver, we have a housing shortage, um, whether it's ownership or renting, it's really expensive here. And yet we can't offer anyone in Canada uh, a house, yet we can put on uh, a house for for our employees from Mexico. So anyways, some of it's, it's always interesting in terms of the bureaucracy and things like that. Yeah, how those dynamics and those regulations kind of fall out. And I, I, I always think my my dad's a land use planner, and so I, I'm, I'm always sensitive to how, you know, you 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 have to you have to carefully structure regulations to try to get the outcomes that you want. And I'm not necessarily saying that it makes sense in this case, but I think sometimes there's just, yeah, sometimes it makes me want to tear my hair out. Yeah. And listen, it's all for, I understand where the rules came from originally as well. We don't want a lot of housing, whether it's employee housing um, or rentals or whatever on farmland. It's, I understand where the rules came from, but they almost really push us towards hiring people from out of Canada. So, yeah. Do the do your other two full-time employees, do they come down from Vancouver or do they live in one of the closer communities? They both commute from Vancouver. Lydia, there, I think I think we're at a good spot to take a break. And then we'll be right back with more from Lydia Ryle from Cropthorn Farm in British Columbia. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes for organic growers since 1992. Founder and owner Carl Hammer got started as an organic vegetable grower, where he learned that quality transplants really mattered and that quality transplants come from quality potting soils. Just like the donkey in their logo, Vermont Compost Company potting soils aren't glitzy, they aren't glamorous, they're steadfast and consistent, stubbornly making certain that your transplants can get everything they need from just a few cubic centimeters of soil. And even though it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program can help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Their full truckloads and shared truckloads program organizes shipping to other regions in ways that sometimes get shipping prices down to the level you'd pay right there in the great state of Vermont. Plus, you pay a lower price for the potting soil. To get a quote from Vermont Compost, go to the ordering page on their website and submit the request to quote form. This form also adds you to their mailing list so you stay in the loop on the program. And remember, the donkeys that I mentioned earlier, they're the real thing. 
you get a little bit of donkey manure in every batch of Vermont compost potting soil. Feed your plants the best. VermontCompost.com Bandwidth for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, and you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor, and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheeled farm tractors. I've used other tillers and mowers, and I spent most of the time when I was using them thinking of how much easier it would be with a BCS. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions before we finally got smart and bought one for ourselves. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, the BCS tackled jobs that we couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments. All right, and we're back with Lydia Ryle from Cropthorne Farm in British Columbia. So, Lydia, you're 30 years old. You're farming on a on an agricultural island. You're you're female. Um, what's that like? I mean, has that has that been a challenge for you to fit into that community? I don't notice it. It's definitely a question I get asked a lot. Um, for me. I I don't think about it, whether it's an issue. And I know other people definitely think about it. Um, the only times I'm frustrated or, or maybe that I notice that I'm a female um, and that I wish I was either burlier or, or a male is, you know, my size. I'm, I'm a petite person and trying to, you know, lift things or working with some of our equipment sometimes it's, physically a lot harder, um, to do that. And the only other time is when I go to, well, at the beginning, um, when I go to the tractor dealership, I'd go with my dad and it'd be me buying the equipment and my dad would just be there to, you know, help me out. And the salespeople would always be asking my dad, um, you know, and trying to butter him up, not realizing that it was my operation. And that's normal. I think most you know, most operations, it is, you know, the dad owning it and the, the daughter or son working. So I was never offended or anything, but those are the only times I ever realized, um, realized it. And I think in terms of our community, like we try to give back, like I sit on local organizations and boards and uh, I think maybe at the beginning, you know, local farmers were kind of wondering what I was doing, um, but now I think our farms gained a lot of respect from them and yeah, we were much more collaborators and, um, colleagues now than, than, you know, this young gal out in the field. So yeah, it's something that I, I don't, I don't know. I don't think about. I think that probably helps that you don't think about it. Yeah, I What's interesting, though, is when I lived out on the prairies, it's much more conservative out there. And I definitely noticed there was gender roles. And I think that's probably part of the reason why I moved back to the coast is that I'm a pretty strong female. And um, if I was going to be farming, I didn't want to be um, 
the one in the house watching the children and bringing lunches out to the guys on the tractor, which believe me, nothing is wrong with that. It's a super valuable um, position on a, on a farm to be doing that. But for me, I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to, to be the one, you know, driving the tractor, I guess. And in fact, now, I mean, that really is your role on the farm. You, you've got a husband, you've got other family that's involved with you in your operation, but, but you're the farmer. Yeah, I'm, yep. I'm the main one. So yeah, it's a bit of, even with my husband right now, he's on parental leave. We have a three month old and it's, uh, it's a little bit role reversal, but it's also 2016. So it's, 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 I don't know. To me, it's not role reversal. It's just, yeah, it's just how it should be. Maybe. <laughs> okay. So you said three month old, that's a little bit of a change. Yeah. This year is definitely a lot different than any other year I've worked. So, so tell us about that. What's, I mean, if you, if you've got a three month old and it's the end of August, so August, July, June. So you had, wow. You had a baby at the beginning of June on a market farm. Well, I should say she's three and a half. She's yeah. Mid mid May, but yeah, she was supposed to be born the end of April. Um, but I was actually quite happy that she stayed in because I got to get all that plowing and field work done the end of April. Um, so it's definitely a little challenging at the beginning. I don't think my staff saw me for the first three weeks too much other than a bit in and out. Um, and now it's a lot better. I can, you know, get some get a few things done. You know, last night I was out on the tractor for a little bit and um, I'm definitely constrained a bit more to the office these days, but it's really interesting. I think market farmers, we're so focused in our business sometimes that we don't think about the actual business or, or, or step outside it for a second. And this year I've, I'm seeing the farm from a different set of eyes. Um, and so I can see things wondering, why are we doing this? And this isn't working and maybe we need to change this. And so it's a bit of a mixed blessing. I, I've only harvested once or twice this year. Um, I'm down in the barn. I can wash up a bit when she's sleeping, but I'm not out in the field as much. But it's, you know, it's only three months in. So, I, you know, I don't know how, it's, you know, ask me again in a year, I guess. But um, I think it's. I'm getting a bit of different insight because I'm stepping away or I'm not as hands-on. Um, and I think that's valuable. And hopefully I'm going to, you know, write some things down and be able to implement stuff. That ability to step away from the farm is always something that I'm interested in. I mean, people oftentimes, you know, create businesses and I don't care whether you're talking farming or, or another small business where, it's really difficult to step away for the other things that are happening in your life, whether it's, you know, whether it's having a baby or going on a honeymoon or, or dealing with a sick parent, were there things that you did in preparation for having a child that allowed your farm to run smoothly in while you changed your role and moved out of the, the day-to-day operational aspect? Yeah. So I think, 
first is we have a good returning crew. Um, three of the five were returning. Um, our our main field guy, you know, I promoted him to a you know a field manager to really let him have the reins this season. Um, my husband went on parental leave, um, so he was he finished work in May and he'll be back at work in January. So he's got eight months um, here on the farm, which is a huge help. My parents live on the farm, so they'll be able to provide some childcare. I mean, they're both working full time. It's not something that they're going to be doing a lot of, but there's support there. Um, but it's interesting what you say, because this year or so many times in other years, I thought everything was riding on me. I'm the face of the farm. I can't step away. I'm really important. <laughs> and I think this year has really proven that, you know what, if you have a really good, you know, if you have really good staff, then you can step away. You can take that week vacation. The farm is not going to go under in a week if you have support. So whether it's a child or, as you said, it could be all sorts of things, it is important to be able to get away because you're not, although, you know, as the, as the, as the manager, yes, you have a really important role, but your mental health is really important too. So it is important to be able to step back and, and get away. And um, I think for me, when my husband and I talked about having children, I didn't think I'd be able to slow down. I slowed down a little bit when I met my husband uh, in terms of working, but I knew the only way that I would be able to slow down and get a bit more balance in my life was bringing a child into it. I know that sounds a little crazy, but it, I don't, know if I would have been able to stop working as much. And now um, life is still very full and very busy, but there's different outlets and, uh, you know, I'm seeing things through different light. So I'm really grateful for that, I guess. I think that farmers tend to be the kind of people who derive a lot of value from their work, a lot of value, a lot of their identity, a lot of their self-worth. And it's a real challenge to, to, do things that aren't fulfilling that value unless you have something else that's really solid and you've identified that's that you plug into to say, I'm going to get, I'm going to create identity out of being this thing that's not being a farmer or not being a, in my case, not being a podcaster, not being a consultant. Um, you know, that, that we, we tend to really focus on that as who we are and, and where we, where we gain our sense of self-worth. Yeah, absolutely. So family on the farm, I mean, it's not just it's not just the baby and it's not just your husband, Dave. You live on a farm that has several other operations going on. Tell us a little bit more about how that works. <laughs> yeah, so in terms of my operation, my mom is um, she works for me part time. Um, she does the books, um, our CSA administration, um, payroll, all, all of the kind of the office stuff. And to me, that's a huge resource. She um, creates amazing spreadsheets. She, um, and it's somebody I really trust with, with that side of the business. Um, so it's, it's great having her and she's got a lot of expertise there on that. So we work together quite a bit. Um, my dad 
So my dad does the green. Um, he's also a consultant. So he is around the world. Um, so he's not always around the farm. And so he's not really involved in the day-to-day operations of my business. But in terms of you know, big picture infrastructure, when I built um, our barn, he was definitely helping um with that construction, um, with ditches when they need cleaning, just working with contractors and, and things like that. So um, definitely get get help there. Um, and as I said earlier, my sister just started her flower business this year. Um, so she, we, she markets some of her flowers um, through the farm stand um, and she's using our equipment and things like that. So it's, it's all, you know, it's, it's separate businesses, but it's a big partnership um, because, you know, my barn is kind of the main hub of, of the operation here and everyone's kind of flowing in and out of it and we're sharing resources. So um, yeah. Have you set up anything formal for that sharing of resources? I mean, does does your sister rent space in the barn from you, or does she rent tractor time? Do you pay her if she's helping you out on the farm this year? Does or is it much? Is it more informal? With my parents and myself, it's pretty formal. I help them um, with some of the tractor work, and sometimes they help me with with um, tractor work. So we keep track of that and. And we have a pretty formal agreement with my sister. It's her first year. And I think, you know, in the spring, she wasn't sure of what her needs were. Um, she is renting cooler space from me this year. But um, in terms of, you know, the, she's got a pretty small operation right now. So it's not a lot of field work that we're, we're doing for her. And she can do some of it herself. And so this year, we've just let it go to see what her needs are for the future, but I think formal agreements are important. So we'll get there this winter with, with the one with my sister. Now you've always farmed on land that was owned by your family. So you've always had this kind of a, of a intertwining. And I think your sister's was involved in your farm for a long time too, right? Yes. Yeah. Has that been, well, blessing or curse? Depends on the day. <laughs> um, no, I, it's a total blessing. It's a blessing we have to work at. Um, but it's great. My sister has two girls and they get to grow up on the farm. They get to be with their, you know, their aunt and uncle and grandma and grandpa. And, you know, I'll see it with my kids as, as time goes on. And so, um, and I really enjoy my parents. I get along really well. Um, with them most of the time, of course, and my sister as well. And so it's, I don't know, sometimes it's, it's a lot of work to maintain these relationships, but it's also great that we get to see each other every day. Um, And I think, you know, when you talk about what work is required for us, um, when we realized things weren't working and there, there was some discourse is that we hired a, farm family coach that came in and um, is helping us communicate because I think it can be really hard communicating with the ones you love um, at times when you want to talk about business stuff and then there's, you know, underlying issues and it's really great to have somebody 
come in and kind of cut the BS and, and make people accountable for things. And so we brought somebody in um, earlier this year. So we've only started working with them, you know, in the last six months, but it's really, really helped. And I think for us looking back, we should have done it sooner. I think any consultant would say you should have called me sooner. Um, and, and I think, I think marriage counselors say the same thing all the time. You know, you, you, did you guys, did you guys have a crisis that precipitated bringing a consultant in or, or was this something where you just were like, we just want things to be better? Um, I think last fall when my sister, my sister and I got to the point where the relationship wasn't healthy. Um, she had been working for me as an employee, which is, which is hard. It's really hard to give a sibling an employee review. Um, you know, her girls were on the farm, and so it's hard to um, find a wage for somebody when their children are always around. And so there was all these things that got to be really, really hard, and I think things that were unsaid. And um, and it was hard for my sister that sometimes she was an employee, but she also had she also really, really cared and wanted to go the extra mile at times. So sometimes she felt like she was an employee that, so it was, it was getting to the point that it was challenging and we were growing flowers under my farm for the last few years. And, um, it was something that she wanted to do, to do herself. And, um, it's, it was a little tough last fall, just kind of that, that transition at first. Um, I think the fall at being tired and just, you know, the fall harvest and, I was pregnant at the time, so I think my hormones weren't necessarily in the best place. So for a few months, my sister and I had a really challenging relationship. And so I think everybody saw that the farm as a whole needed to move forward and we needed to someone brought in because we can't have my parents mediating between the two of us. That's of no value and we can't put our parents in that position. So bringing someone in um, that we both respected, that we both knew that, you know, didn't, they weren't, um, they didn't have any other ulterior motives other than, you know, that uh, a healthy outcome. So um, that's kind of why we brought them in. But with that being said is in terms of bringing you know, having people come into the farm and help is, you know, some of our, our, our farms are, you know, million dollar, multi-million dollar operations. And uh, I think I don't understand why farmers don't value their businesses the same way that other businesses value their businesses and bring in um, consultants. I think in farming, we hesitate to do it, but I think there's a lot of value in it because as we talked earlier, we're so focused in our business sometimes that we're not looking at the bigger picture about where we're going in five years. Do we even want to go there in five years? What are our personal goals? Is the farm meeting that? And what about our spouses? Are they happy? And so um, I think it took us a while to, to bring someone in, but I think there's a lot of value. And I think from now on, it's somebody it's something that we want to continue on doing. Has it had an impact on your relationship with your parents as well as with your sister? Yes. Yes, I think so. Um, 
I think the biggest thing is we talked about clear expectations and, um, and I think that's, that's helped a lot. Um, yeah, it's helped me and my parents too. Um, we share a lot of equipment and a lot of resources and just really hammering out those, those use agreements and making sure that everyone understands and are on the same page, I think is, is really valuable because it is a partnership and we want to continue this. Um, so it, um, there's some things with my parents and myself that we need to work on and, and having someone brought in for us to talk about it has, has been helpful as well. And I know that we're, I mean, obviously talking about this kind of personal stuff has a, I mean, there's certain, I don't want to dig and pry too far, but, but I also think these are all issues that all of us are dealing with. Are, has there been a tool or a technique that has been extra important to you in improving your relationship with the other members of your farming family and your other, I guess I want to say your, your farming community there? I think being really aware of your emotions, I think is, is one tone and, and just how, how one communicates, I think can go a really long way. Um, And just being really thoughtful when we are having those important conversations is not being, you know, overly, emotional um and and saying things you don't mean i think that um especially in the fall when we're all so tired um it's you know sometimes things that can get said and and sometimes it's just you know those things can be said but it's owning up to them and uh saying hey i said that in the wrong way this is what i meant um and i think that's something with maturity too i think it's harder you know when i look back um I'm a lot different on how I manage myself from quite a few years ago. And so, um, yeah, communication, it's amazing. It's so amazing um, how uh, people interpret things, tone and all that. So just being, for me, a bit more thoughtful uh, with my words. Thanks for sharing that, Lydia. No problem. Okay, so... Putting the touchy-feely stuff aside, then, um, I think you built a new packing shed recently. Yeah, we built it in 2012. Um, So not super recently, but... Not super recently, um, but yeah, we've been in it uh, a few years now. Um, It's definitely the main hub of our operation. We uh, have two walk-in coolers. We wash all our veggies in here. We have a little maintenance area. Lots of storage, our office, lunchroom. I always said that was one of the biggest mistakes when I built my packing shed at Rock Spring Farm was we didn't put an office in because I was like, oh, I got an office in the house. And then it, it became really apparent that we we actually should have had an office over in the packing shed. Tell us a little bit about, about how big that packing area is for running a $600,000 farm. So the barn is about 80 feet by 50 feet. Um, and then there's lean-tos on it as well for equipment storage. Um, and when we built it, uh, they said, oh, are you sure you don't want to build it any bigger? And I think without a, within a year, we felt like we had outgrown it. So um, it's, it's still a good size. We have two walk-in coolers. They are 20 feet by 15 feet each. Um, and then our post-harvest wash-up area 
is about the quarter, a quarter of the size of the whole barn. And for us, we had gone from our post-harvest area being outside. And so when we built this barn, we really wanted to make things easy um, and nice. So we have um, lots of uh, windows in there just so we get some natural light, especially in the winter months. Um, there's wall paneling so we can just wash it off really easily, stainless steel tables. Um, the floor, it's cement and it slopes. So um, all the water um, goes into a grate. Um, yeah, it is so nice compared to what we were, what we had before. And we try to organize everything too. So we always out in the field, we can't necessarily organize things um, easily. Um, but in the field or in the, in the pack house, there's a place for everything. There's a place for the clean knives. There's a place for the dirty knives. There's a place for each scale and, and things like that. So we really want to have like a streamlined um, post-harvest area. What kinds of equipment are you using for post-harvest handling? You mentioned a barrel washer. Do you have other tools that you're that you're using? We don't have a lot in post-harvest right now. Um, it's something that I can keep. We're just at the point that we need to do a few other things, especially in the winter. I think we could um, probably improve some efficiencies with, with a longer line um, for washing. But right now, we just have... Um, those, uh, I think, $200 salad spinners from Johnny's, those orange ones. We don't do a lot of salad greens, but we use that. Um, we have a few dunk tanks, just big Rubbermaid dunk tanks. Um, but we don't um, have a lot more in our post-harvest area right now. And then did you... Did you include things in your packing shed? Like, a, do you have a loading dock for your for loading out for farmers markets and things like that, or is any other any other sort of ergonomic advantages that you created in that? We don't have a loading dock. We have the ability to put a loading dock in when we built the barn. We made sure it was high enough that we could. Um, at the time, it was a bit of an expense, um, but yeah, our trucks are right there, so we can move the pallet jack right up to the to the truck at least but we still have to lift things into the truck right now um some other things that we did you know our hoses are hanging from above just to make sure we're not tripping on them um i think another thing we have since we have so many outlets on one of the coolers is a giant whiteboard and so we need to know where things are going and know what the orders orders are. So we have a list, you know, we're a market farm. So we're growing, what, 50 different crops, I guess, 30 at a time sometimes are on the harvest slate. So we have a list of all the crops we're growing. And then with what's requested for each market um, and then what actually gets harvested, sometimes we have overage or, or under. And so um, it's this matrix that um, that we have just so that we know um, where things are going. And um, at this point, at the end of the day, I just snap a picture of it. And then I go upstairs and put it into Excel. And then that is our sales sheet for when we're going to the to the markets. You guys have three farmers markets a week, and then you've got the CSA distribution. Are you harvesting for those outlets all at once? I mean, do you go out and get all of the kale for everything you're going to need for the week, or are you picking the day before for each of those different outlets? 
We're harvesting twice a week. Um, so we do our CSA. It's on two different days. So um, Monday, Tuesday, we are harvesting for our Tuesday CSA and Wednesday farmer's market. And then Thursday, Friday, we are harvesting for our weekend CSA and then our Saturday, Sunday farmer's market. Some things like cabbage we'll bring in in a big macro and we'll store in the cooler for a week or two um, and and harvest and and clean it and process it as needed. Um, but for things like broccoli, yeah, we're harvesting more than once a week. And, and same with our leafy greens with kales and chard. Uh, it's, it's twice a week. Um, things like carrots and potatoes, definitely. Um, we want to gain efficiencies that way. Every time we go out to the field, it takes more time. And so for things that can store, we do try to to harvest once a week or once every two weeks, just especially when we are switching implements like a potato digger on, you know, it takes 20 minutes by the time the thing's on. So we don't want to be putting that on once or twice a week, because as I said, there's two other operations here that need some of the equipment. So um, that's one of downfall, I guess, of the partnership is that, um, the equipment or the the tractors are in kind of hot demand at times. So when you go out to harvest, say on Thursday, Friday, to get ready for your Saturday, Sunday distributions, you're going out and you're harvesting all of the kale that you need for the farmer's market on Saturday, the farmer's market on Sunday, and your CSA distributions. Is that right? Yeah. And then that's all going into the packing shed as one lot. Are you divvying that out then in the packing shed into, I mean, are you organizing things onto different pallets or? In the walk-in coolers, each market has a pallet. We have, uh, you know, laminated card um, that we just hook into each, onto each pallet to say, this is the Main Street pallet or this is the CSA. So each pallet in the cooler is identified by name and color um, for what it is. So yeah, when we're washing, say kale, we'll look on the whiteboard, see what the recipe is. Okay, you know, 15 for farm stand, you know, 60 for market, okay, 100 for CSA. And then when we're washing it, we're putting it into different bins. And then when it goes into the cooler, it's we're putting things on, on different pallets. Great. I love that color coding aspect. I think that's so important for really being able to just, I think it, I think it pops in a way that words don't for people. And, you know, absolutely. And the other thing too is, is that we have language barriers at time, right? We have three guys that are Spanish speaking. And although, you know, they, they know that it's main street market, but it's something that's yeah, a little more obvious for them than, than the word. All right. So with that, Lydia, I'd like to turn to the lightning round and ask you, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Uh, pallet jack, without a doubt. It's uh, it's made life so much easier in the barn just to do material handling. Um, yeah, it's a lot easier moving things on a pallet instead of, you know, hand bombing them into the around the farm. So, yeah. But wheels are just right you know helping it helping humanity for five thousand years yes what's the last book that you read um <laughs> the birth partner <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah so uh that but 
I've been, yeah, so that's a little bit different, but uh, usually um, the book that I've been going through for actually, unfortunately, at least the last like year and a half, it's a crazy horse and cluster. So I like, yeah, I like history and I like kind of local history and I know it's a bit down south, but uh, yeah, I've been going through that one for a while. So that's, it's been a good one. What's your favorite crop to grow? Probably leeks. They, yeah, they're just so cheery in the winter. We overwinter them out in the field and they're just green and yeah, they just, they're just hearty and they're tasty and I don't know, they're pretty easy, relatively low maintenance crop to grow. You tell us a little bit about how you grow those because it's not the easiest crop and it's got a really long season. So can you kind of walk us through the process from seed to harvest? Yeah. So I guess we must seed them in March um, and they get transplanted early June. And I think throughout the summer, it's just a lot of water. That's like a big requirement for them. And if we're not getting the rain, um, also fertility is really important. Um and we usually only have to weed twice. We'll do a pretty good weed in July and then probably a cleanup. Um, I don't even think we have weeded them for a second time this year, but it might Way to require go. A, a cleanup probably in August. Um, and then we're harvesting them all winter on a weekly basis. Um, and it's just nice. You get a sunny, warm well, a sunny, warmish day in in the winter, and uh, yeah, it's enjoyable. I think the the challenge is is when it's the soil is a bit frozen, and you're trying to get your knife down and and cut it out. Um, you're definitely losing efficiencies on those days where the soil is a bit frozen. But um, we also try to manage those days and try to harvest leaks in the winter months where um, where the soil is is completely thawed. If if we are going through a, a a cold snap out here. So when you're seeding those in the greenhouse, are you doing those in solid flats or are you putting four seeds in a cell? Can you tell us how, how that works? Yeah. So for our, for our onions, we do um, multi. So it's four seeds to a cell for leeks. Um, we actually try to just do one. Um, we want really nice big leeks. Um, so I think we use a, a 288 tray. Um, and we use a vacuum seeder. So, um, and this is one crop that we do have to transplant by hand. We have a transplanter, but um, with really small cell size, it's just easier and faster um, to 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 transplant them by hand. So one leak, and you are how far apart are you spacing those in the row? So we have four rows, which are 12 inches apart, um, each row. And then the in-row spacing is about five, six inches, something like that. So you end up with a pretty solid bed of leeks. Yes. And then you said for harvest, you're just out there with, with knives kind of getting down under and undercutting them. Are you, what kind of knife are you using to do that? I wish we could use our undercutter bar, but we are so wet that we can't get on with a tractor, um, in the, in the winter. So yeah, we're going in with knives and it's, um, I call it the lettuce knife. It's a yellow handled knife. And so we're just slicing, um, just underneath the soil, um, kind of inwards towards the leak a little bit and two slices 
um, and it's heavy clay. So we're actually then cutting the roots outside. Like we're not bringing the roots inside because there's usually a decent mass of, of roots of, of mud um, on, on the roots. Um, and then just two slices to cut the top foliage a little bit. Um, and then on to the next one, I I'd say, I won't, I think if we had sandier soil, um, it would be a lot easier to grow, but it's great, especially for our winter CSA and our winter markets. They're really happy to have uh, uh, leeks, kind of you know, a, a green non-root crop uh, at the markets in the wintertime. So that's why we grow them. And finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? <laughs> I think to enjoy it. I think things were a lot simpler back then. Um, and yeah, I, I love that I was able to do everything on the farm at that point when it was such a smaller scale. You know, it's, it's not the, the case. I'm not doing everything these days. Um, and I think at the beginning, you're just not confident with what you're doing and you're always looking around to see what other farms are doing and, just to be happy with, with where you, where you're at. Um, yeah, you know, it's that thing. It's not the destination, it's the journey. And throughout, you know, the, where the farm ha was at the beginning to where it's been and where it is now, it's enjoying each place. I think that's what's awesome about a farm is that you, it, you can, the farm can adapt and change based on what you want and it's just enjoying each each place that that the farm's been because I think, yeah, sometimes I I would just get frustrated that it's that it wasn't perfect and I mean what is perfect but um, it wasn't the place where I wanted it to be yet but uh, yeah I think maybe looking back I didn't you know just head down working too much and not enjoying where I was really important Lydia thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 84 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Ryle. That's R-Y-A-L-L. -L. Don't forget, you can support the show by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. Your support makes a big difference to us, whether you provide ongoing support or make a one-time donation, or make your Amazon.com purchases through our affiliate link at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash Amazon. It all helps us keep the tractor running. Reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of our business, and we love your support that way as well. If you enjoy the show, please bounce on over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a review. You can also sign up for my email list at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. And I love to get your guest suggestions. This episode is a direct result of one of those suggestions, so please keep them coming at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. Farmer to Farmer.